0: Investors Chronicle. Companies and Markets Show. On the show this week Marks and Spencer's is our result of the week. Madeline Taylor's here to talk through them. Our personal finance expert Leonora Walters joins the show for the first time. She's talking SIPS. And not 30 minutes before we've come on air, Rishi Sunak has announced the details of his windfall tax on energy companies. We'll be picking through that. Let's get on with the show. The Market Show. It is Thursday, the 26th of May, just past 1pm as we speak. Uh, good to have you back, listener. Good to be back. Uh, joined in the studio by Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Hello, John. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. Madeline Taylor, you're back. Hello. Hello. Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Hello there, John. And first time for Leonora Walters. Hi, Leonora.
1: Hi. How are you doing?
0: Good. Thank you. Good to have you along. Uh, And Dan Jones, as always, Dan, what are we talking about today?
2: Uh, We've got a few things coming up. We've got Marks and Spencer's uh, results as our result of the week, as you mentioned. Uh, We're going to be talking about SIPs and retirement saving and asset allocation. And uh, hot off the press, we're going to be talking about the um, windfall tax that has literally just been announced, or the temporary targeted profits levy, if you want to use the uh, (laughs) official term. (laughs)
0: Yes, yes, exactly. And that's that's where I was going to start my mini news roundup as well. Yeah, the government have finally come around to a windfall tax on energy companies or, yeah, as Dan just said, a temporary targeted energy profits levy. Um, The headline rate of tax on profits is 25%, I believe. uh, And it comes as the cost of living crisis rumbles on. And also as Partygate scandal intensifies. Coincidence? Maybe. U-turn, definitely. <laughs> anyway, political cynicism aside, Dan and uh, and this lot will be going into the details and implications a little later in the show. Uh, elsewhere, on Tuesday, mining giant Glencore agreed to pay $1.2 billion in fines across the US and UK it comes after a three-year investigation by the UK's Serious Fraud Office resulted in the company admitting bribery offences within its oil division. Alex Hamer has the full write-up on the IC website. Uh, Wednesday evening, we had news that the boss of JD Sports, Peter Cowgill, has stepped down with immediate effect. It is understood Cowgill quit after he tried to block attempts by the board to split the roles of chair and chief executive, which Cowgill has done jointly held since 2014. JD Sports shares tumbled 12% uh, at the news. Another boss on the move, Avon Protections chief exec Paul McDonald, is stepping down after the company and issued another disappointing set of results. McDonald has been CEO for five years and will leave the post in September. Shares sank 17% on Tuesday. Ted Baker has moved a step closer to sale. The fashion retailer said it selected a, quote, preferred counterparty. Uh, There has been a flurry of private equity interest in the company, though Sycamore Partners, who made two official bids in March, are now confirmed as out of the running. Company's results in the magazine and on our website this week from Premier Foods, 91, Royal Mail, EasyJet, Shaftesbury, Hollywood Bowl, SSE, and uh, quite a few more. Go and check that out. Quick look at the markets now. Uh, Will the S&P 500 break its streak of eight consecutive weeks of losses? At the time of recording, it's up 2%. In fact, we're seeing marginal gains across Wall Street. Uh, FTSE 100 also up a couple of percent so far this week.
2: Thank you, John. Uh, Yeah, so we are going to start the rest of the show with a look at the high street. We're going to talk about M&S, which Put out pretty good interims uh, six months ago, and has now come out with some fairly decent full year results. But obviously, the context is very different now. Uh, as with many of its peers, the the focus is very much on inflation and margins and and outlook for the months ahead. Uh, Maddie is with us. Uh, Maddie uh, wrote her analysis of the results this week. Uh, let's sort of start, I guess, just by taking a step back and looking at the numbers. We've still got them on hold. What's your kind of take on uh, on the full year figures?
1: Well,
3: I think one of the really important things about this set of results is that it was the chief executive Steve Rose last. He's now leaving after about forty years at the business, and it's also been four years since he delivered this turnaround plan that was rather dramatically entitled "Facing the Facts," and it was a more honest look at M&S's journey. And at the time, it was struggling really quite uh, a lot against a declining kind of home and clothing section. And there were a lot of things it decided to do at that point. And now this has been billed as kind of the final judgment on that plan since it's Steve Rose last. And, yeah, it's going to be a long time before we're really going to be able to judge the results of that entire plan. It was a sweeping kind of vision of closing lots of stores, you know, changing the entire focus between the food section and the home and clothing section. But one thing that we really can say so far is that the home and clothing section's decline has been stemmed, which is a real achievement given the current environment with consumer spending and inflation all coming and hitting all retailers, you know, we've had Debenhams, Topshop, lots of high profile closures in the last few years. So it is impressive that they're now 3.8% up in terms of sales on their pre-COVID levels. That's mostly been achieved by slashing their levels of discounting, but also kind of updating their range of brands that they're offering. So, you know, props to them on that. However, there are the significant downsides as well, as we've alluded to, with consumer spending and inflation hitting their costs so they have said that they're expecting profits to fall in the next year from about 523 million this year to about 440 next so obviously this turnaround has kind of reached a stalling point if you will for now
2: yeah it is interesting on the the clothing side as you say that's an area that's you know struggled for a long time I do kind of wonder if they still know who they're targeting. I mean, you know, getting rid of the discounters, the discounts, you know, maybe looking back towards that kind of classical M&S customer base. They've benefited from some of those people who've fallen by the wayside like Debenhams. I mean, do, do we get the sense at the end of this turnaround program that they know who they're targeting now? Do they have a niche or are they still trying to perhaps be all things to all people maybe?
1: Well,
3: I think it's difficult for them because they have got this image as such a sturdy, steady kind of all rounder brand, um, and so it's difficult, I think, for them to find that niche as you as you say, because they're just this, yes, this all rounder. However, what they've done, which seems to have worked so far, is they've they've got in a number of brands uh, like Jaeger, which they saved from collapse last year. And they've also had uh, high profiles at partnerships with companies like Ghost, which both of those are sort of at the higher end of the range, appealing to a more affluent, possibly older consumer. And that does seem to be working. However, um, they also seem they, they have also been emphasising value in some areas, um, including of some slightly outdated fashions, like they mentioned cutting prices on jeggings in their recent, and it seems like they are still a little bit finding their way in that area.
2: Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I was thinking about this question earlier, you know, who is their customer, and then, uh, and then about 10 minutes ago, my, uh, I'm on holiday next week, and my wife is in m and she sent me a photo of some T-shirts, said, should I get you some T-shirts? So apparently, <laughs> apparently their customer is me, you know, maybe <laughs> a slightly behind-the-times late-30s male. Um, uh, Mark Mark Robinson, uh, what, what's your kind of take on uh, the M&S the results Hello. and the turnaround?
4: Oh, Dan, I was, uh, I was just engaged in a bit of reminiscence there as well, because I remember the first time I went into an m and store would have been in the late 1960s, I guess. And uh, you look back to that period then, and there was, there was really limited competition in terms of uh, national chains. You think of something like Army and Navy stores and, and so forth. But they, they, were, it, they were in a sort of prime position there. And I think the brand then, the, the emphasis was on quality. Uh, but at a value price. And I think they tried to um, take that forward. And, and that model worked right through the 1960s, of course, the 70s, and some way into the 1980s. But then you had a whole a range of uh, high street competitors come onto the market. And latterly, you've, all, you've got the influence of online shopping, of course, but also the rise of fast fashion. So it's it's an increasingly crowded space for them there as well. And I think Stuart Rose, when he was there, struggled with this problem for years. Even though, uh, you know, by contrast, the uh, the food side of the business, uh, you know, went ahead at a great rate of knots. It was very successful. But every every chief executive since the mid 1980s has struggled uh, with the, with the clothing brand up until this present set of figures. It, it may well be that this is um, slightly misleading in a sense uh they they're going to have to uh, and it, there's signs they're doing this but they're going to have to um uh, concentrate all the more on infantry levels uh and maddie pointed out the fact that they've reduced the rates of discounting which is uh, uh which is critical for the business and presumably on that basis they're going to increase their stock turn uh so it'll it'll be a more uh, efficient operation going forward I imagine however we we do have this situation at the moment where wholesale prices are outstripping retail and that gap is actually widening so i i, I made a point in one of uh, the articles last week that um, you know you reach a certain point where you you where you can only pass on so much of these cost increases through to um, your customer customer base and we may well be there already, in which case that's just going to go and eat into earnings. So, you know, it's, it's definitely a creditable result on their part. But I guess looking ahead, it, it's those sort of uh, meat and potato metrics, that the ones we'll have to look at relating to inventory and discounting. I suppose the, the the question for all the listeners really is, you know, what does this
2: how does this affect the uh, the share price going forward? As I said at the start, at the top we've still got them on hold. Uh, you know, there's a lot of investment spend to come. The dividend hasn't come back, which uh, you know I think a lot of people obviously used the last couple of years. Well, they had to get rid of dividends, but maybe they're not coming back as quickly in some cases as one may have expected. There's still you know some way to go despite the big share price fall this year in terms of value. There is that a fair is that a fair assessment?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's hard to argue with the dividend still being missing because, as we've said, they are facing quite a difficult next couple of years. Plus, they've got this exit from Russia. They've planned to to completely shut that down, which they've taken a £31 million charge on. And, yeah, what we've seen before, encouragingly, is that companies that continue to actually invest in their organic growth – even during tougher periods, they tend to come out of that stronger. You know, obviously, there's there are limits to that. But in, in effect, you could see them cutting that dividend and choosing to focus on growth as potentially a positive in the long term. Not for now, though.
2: Yeah. Uh, I suppose on that note, maybe the, the flip side, we've got to um, finish the M&S discussion with it. Look at Ocado, that side. I mean... The joint venture there is has put in some some decent figures. It seems in recent months, in the interims, and and certainly the last four years, you'd expect. But uh, they're saying you know that profits pretty much evaporated for this year. To me, it kind of raises the perennial question again of of how much money you can ever expect to make from uh, um, online shopping or online grocery shopping. You know, uh, we've had a we've had a recommendation from Leonora for their apple and cinnamon uh, bake, I think it was. But but uh, quality of products aside, it's still difficult to make money out of that part of the business.
3: Yeah, the margins are even lower than they are for traditional grocery uh, because of all, all of the delivery costs as well. But then you've also got to consider that both M&S and Ocado, they're both considered premium in terms of their food offering, which might not stand them in such good stead in the coming months with more people having to economise. You know, we've already seen Lidl and Aldi have been the only real grocery winners this year the only ones to really keep growing sales convincingly and so and so it is difficult to see what the future is for that it's already been weighed down in the past few years anyway when it sort of the Ocado uh, retail segment has been weighed down because uh, they they couldn't actually even expand capacity fast enough to really benefit from the COVID Uh, obviously the boost that they would have got uh, during COVID Um, so I think it's obviously something to keep watching
2: another work in progress Mm. yeah uh okay let's uh let's move on let's look at a slightly longer term time horizon and our cover story this week which is a sip special uh looking at all things uh personal pension we've got a range of features we're looking at asset allocation we're looking at uh charges and you know how to compare and contrast we're looking at uh, the difference between a platform SIP and a full service SIP, which is something I think people don't often uh, consider. They might not need to, but we'll come to that in a minute. Um, Leonora, you uh, have written and overseen a lot of these features this week. Let's let's kick off by, I think maybe, you know, this is obviously a bit of a fraught time for markets, uh, but we contrast that with, you know, the long-term time horizons that people should have, particularly when saving for retirement. What, what kind of changes, what kind of interest have we seen in recent months in terms of, how people are using their SIP, what kind of things they're investing in, that, that kind of thing?
1: Well, um, I think the good news is that uh, um, investment platforms such as Hargreaves Landstone um, report that there's largely not been much change in how their customers are allocating their SIPs. And that's generally good because you shouldn't make knee jerk reactions to events or market falls and sell and lock in losses. Um, It's particularly the right course of action for SIP investors in the accumulation phase who've got 10 years or more until they cash in or start drawing from pensions because they've got long-term investment horizons so should be able to ride the recent volatility uh, and for them, not seeing invested could hinder the growth of their SIPs. Um, There's always a but. Um, Another popular platform, Interactive Investor, has actually reported but wealth preservation investment trusts are more popular over the first four months of this year compared to last year. Now, if you're in the accumulation phase of your pensions and you've got 10 or more years to run, you shouldn't really be holding, you know, wealth preservation funds. You should be aiming for maximum growth in your pension. If you're planning to cash in some all of your pension to buy an annuity in, in the 10 years leading up to doing this, it makes sense to perhaps gradually move your pension into low-risk assets, basically to lock in your decade of gains. You know, this is regardless of market conditions, it's not because of what's happening now, even if markets are wonderful, you know, if you're going to buy an annuity in 10 years or less, it starts to need to you know, dial down the risk. Um, that said, it's a gradual process, um, You know, and if you've got 10 years or eight years, even seven years, you know, making those sales when markets are down is probably not the right moment to do it. Um, There's obviously a lot of SIP investors aren't going to do that. Um, They're probably planning to go into drawdown of their pensions. And if you plan to go into drawdown, you know, yeah, you shouldn't really be in wealth preservation funds. You need high risk growth assets to ensure your pension part will last until the end of your life. So you shouldn't be too cautious. You perhaps maybe want to be a bit more balanced, perhaps more of an income profile. But no, you shouldn't be, you know, offloading, um, you know, uh, growth assets and and piling into into funds, you know, perhaps just. Whatever, stay neutral. Yeah. If you're retired and in drawdown, obviously it's a concern. But a good tactic here is rather than you know piling into you know low risk, low return funds, and you risking your pension, you have your pension in growth investments, perhaps income investments, but also have a good cash reserve. So when markets are choppy, like they are now, stop drawing from your pension and um, use your cash. Um, an advisor suggests that when you're in retirement and perhaps in drawdown, have one to three years of your expenditure in cash.
2: Yeah, I think that's sensible. And, and as you say, the the wealth preservation funds that proved quite popular, it, it did raise an eyebrow. You know, the likes of we're thinking here of you know investment trusts, I suppose, like capital gearing, RIT capital, things like that. Obviously, very good in down markets, but as you say, when your time horizons are so so lengthy. Um, it might be worth reflecting on that, I think. Um, one, uh, one final point that we're going to touch on now is the, the full-service SIP. Now, you know, uh, obviously the, there's been a real boom in, in um, personal pension saving the past five, six, seven years, really, since the pension freedoms. Um, platform SIPs, you know, the standard pension pot has been the real beneficiary of that. But, but there are also more complicated SIPs available um, for people who want to hold commercial property, uh, maybe some uh, unconventional assets uh and we we discussed that a little bit in the issue that obviously um pitfalls to watch for here and you've got to be uh, um very careful but but maybe if you could just talk a little bit about those those full service sips as we call them
1: yeah um right and basically what people mean by a full service sip is you know something that allows you to invest in more than the, the basic platform sips so it allows you to invest all in all the things they do so like open-ended funds investment plus etfs and direct shareholdings But with a full service SIP, depending on the provider, you may also be able to hold commercial property and esoteric assets such as gold bullion, um, unlisted shares in companies, derivatives and direct bond holdings. The um, the downside to this, though, is that um, full service SIPs have more expensive annual charges. And this is particularly the case if you hold commercial property because there are extra charges on top of that, particularly relating to the property. So, for example, from June this year, the Barnet Waddingham Flexible SIP will charge a property purchase fee of at least 800 quid and annual fee per property of 200 quid. And one of the financial advisors I spoke to said, look, if you hold commercial property in a SIP, the various property and administration charges could add up to £3,000 or more per year. So, it's not cheap. I think the bottom line here is. If you don't want to hold these unusual assets in your SIP, don't have a full-service SIP. Keep costs low and go for one of the efficient, low-cost platform SIPs. You know, because they're great for investing in funds and shares uh, and, and sort of uh, more, more more mainstream securities.
2: Yeah, I think that's right for the for the vast majority of people. That will be the uh, the sensible choice. Uh, we we've got lots more on SIPs in uh, this week's issue, so do look out for that. But now let's turn to uh, the issue of the day, really, the uh, energy profits levy. I was writing the editorial this week, earlier this week, and I said when we wrote our cover feature on this last month, we speculated that Sunak might be pushed into a U-turn, pushed into action by October. And as I said in that in that column, it looks like it will now be a matter of weeks, if not days. And in the event, it was hours, because there has been um, an announcement this afternoon by the Chancellor. Alex, uh, we haven't spoken to you yet on this podcast. Apologize for keeping keeping you in the dark, but no, no, been no. fascinating discussions. But um, let's uh, kick things off, maybe with your your take. I mean, obviously, we are just it has just been announced the electricity generators, which were speculated about earlier this week. The power generators, like likes of Drax, SSE, have avoided this
5: charge for now. But but what's your kind of snap reaction to the uh, to the announcement? A place to start with maybe is actually back with that feature that we did that Gemma, Gemma Slingo did a month or so ago, okay, which is looking very, very prescient now. And unfortunately she had to make many of these hedges which you alluded to that you, you made in your editorial this week. She did conclude by saying that for now the North Sea windfall tax looks unlikely, given that it looks part, partly because it looks at odds with the, the government's political philosophy. I, I mean I th- I think what this week has shown is that that there is no there is no value in ideological purity, you know, so it's another reminder that governments and Politicians inevitably will respond to the uh, situation on the ground, and that any any kind of conversation we've we've seen in the last few weeks about it being ideologically um, inconsistent with a you know a conservative government that wants to encourage competition and and um, investment and, and level playing field for markets, the times of crisis, which I think this is it's fair to say we are in now from a cost of living perspective. those considerations go out the window so so yeah we can we can sort of talk a little bit about the the details uh in a minute but yeah i mean to turn to your other point on the electricity generators some of which have done very very well and just looking through some of the some of the briefing notes they've given on the on the profits levy they seem to have left the door open potentially for some uh for some action there on these are uh, windfall profits that are also being made uh, elsewhere in the UK energy sector but for now it's concentrated it looks like solely on the oil and gas producers so it's interesting how they have been they've become the it's upstream which is the root of all evils at the moment rather than the, the the broader the broader infrastructure which which is also benefiting from from higher prices at the moment yeah
2: i think it seems quite likely if if things do stay as they are in terms of pricing then we will see some more action later this year. It seems almost a question of logistics right now is the reason the electricity generators haven't been included because they're still trying to work out what what might happen there, at least with um, oil and gas. They seem to have lent quite heavily, again, as I wrote this week, on the, the um, supplementary charge which was uh, introduced and increased, again, under um, the uh, Conservative government in 2011. Likewise with the with that charge, what has happened again here is there, there are... Uh, allowances being made for new investment, which is clearly an attempt to head off some of the criticisms, the common criticisms of such taxes that they will stymie new investment, particularly at a time when, you know, our own energy supply is, is looking so uncertain, part of the reason we're in this problem in the first place.
5: Yeah, it's like 80% or something, 80 or 90% relief. I mean, is that, is that a sop? I don't know. It's quite, it's quite hard to say, isn't it? Because at the same time, the government has is effectively on the o- other side. It's committing to net zero targets by 2050 so l- encouraging long-term investment in the north sea which has kind of been discouraged for the for the past decade anyway given given the combination of levies and and you just just look at what the the super you know the the oil majors have done you know they don't really see a future in the north sea uh bp's reducing their output um, we've got this this group harbour which is kind of has sort of um swept up a number of the maturing fields it's kind of like a cigar but investing approach to the north sea that, that the players that are left there appear to be taking so we might look at back on this and, and think it's actually quite a clever levy that you're not really you're not really hitting a, an industry which is expected to actually grow in the next 20 years
2: mark what's your uh your take on the um the levy and the the implications for for shareholders as well in the in these companies
4: it's worth mentioning as well that there are already uh, tax incentives in place for uh, upstream producers. But I, 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 I take a, a slightly, I have a different take on it. I think I've got a more mainstream take in that I, I think there's a problem with the government messaging in this one as well, because what you need if you're an oil company or any company where you've got large front-loaded costs, you need some surety on uh, tax levels going forward. And so I think it's going to act as a, as a major disincentive uh, for producers as well, particularly in the North Sea where you've got uh, much higher break-even levels as well. I mean, if you, if you, you could draw an analogy, see the, the excess profits, well, there's no such thing as excess profits, but the profits that have been made by uh, pharmaceutical companies over the last few years, do they warrant a a super tax a levy on them just because of circumstances dictate that they've been become highly profitable uh, within a brief period of time um, it's it's very different it's very difficult difficult to reconcile the government's uh, stance on wanting to um, reduce our dependence on uh, overseas oil and gas with with this tax as well because i mean i'd I'd, I'd like to look at the numbers eventually, but i've I just don't know the amount of money that will be raised, how it'll benefit UK households, but it's it's more of the me- messaging thing for me, and it it could even be filed under the general heading of short term termism in, in government again. It's a it's a sort of quick political fix. It'll play well with households, but um, as I say, companies like oil companies where they're sort of investing huge amounts of capital up front they they want some sort of certainty on on future tax levels. I mean, it's interesting as well that uh, this happened under Conservative government, but, you know, you can go back to the, um, the Thatcher years as well, and Geoffrey Howe introduced a, a similar levy on, on the banks at the time as well. It, it, it's anathema to me as well, and, it, and it, even if you can imagine what happens, this eventually falls on the utilities too. So you're going to have intervention, government intervention on an industry or a sector which is also governed by government intervention? Where does this all stop? I I think um, there's definitely a number of of, uh, points there that are
2: crucial. Um, I think the government has said they expect it to raise five billion over the next year, which will go towards some of the new measures announced today on energy bills, which you can see when you're um, someone, I suppose, like the current chancellor who's so um, opposed to to extra borrowing given the the spending we've had of recent years you know they they, you know he's he's changed his mind very quickly which it has been an issue as it was only a few weeks ago when he was saying to these companies you know if you do invest more you know you can avoid this kind of uh uh windfall tax and now here we are saying well we won't need to invest more but we're going to tax you anyway the other i suppose point of view from the from the shareholder perspective, is how long this tax lasts and how long this uncertainty will hang over the businesses. Just looking at some of the details today, the, there is a sunset clause, but it's not until the end of 2025, so this could be here for some time. The government have also said it will end the levy or phase out the levy when oil or if oil and gas prices return to historically more normal levels, which you know gives them, seems to me, a lot of wiggle room for yeah. defining what normal levels are. Again, 10 years ago when this was introduced, there was a set level of $75 a barrel of Brent. Um, this time it seems a bit more a bit more up in the air. So, so, yeah, it does seem like that uncertainty for shareholders, for companies is going to persist for a while longer. If we return maybe to the electricity generators, the power generators, you know, that, is this going to be an overhang for them now for months perhaps until, until we can see some clarity on whether they're going to be charged, what they're going to be charged?
5: Yeah, almost definitely. I mean, they're not a number of the utility providers as well that Mark mentioned. I mean, they're not trading on phenomenally high um, uh, multiples. But I mean, we saw this week there was big big sell offs in SSC and and uh, Centrica on the possibility that they were going to be included in this in this levy framework that's been announced today. More broadly, I, I not to backtrack in any way. I, I, I do sort of um, I kind of also agree with with what Mark's saying. And the not that this is is set to send a chill over what investment committees looking at, you know, long term capital projects in the UK are gonna decide. But I mean, this isn't actually the the first instance we've seen in the last year even of a subsector within an industry that has seen outsized profits kind of being put on the hook. To provide a a sort of sticking plaster for you know an issue which has caused a lot of big a big headache amongst within the government and that is the house builders so you know they although the the issues with fire safety is partly they are partly to blame for that it's not they're not the only responsible party in this yet it seems that you know the most expedient thing for michael gove to do and they decide they decided this was to sort of put the the levies and Windfall taxes, essentially, on on their doorstep. So, yeah, there is a question hanging over the um at the electricity providers, but you could make the case for other critical infrastructure providers in the country as well. The precedent has kind of been has kind of been set now. So the next crisis might fall on your shoulders, corporate PLC. Uh, just
2: to bring things full circle, I think it was only a few days ago, M&S were describing the prospects for an online sales tax as as Morally bankrupt as well, I think was the the phrase used. So so yeah, there's a number of sectors facing
5: if they're not making profits out of their online operation, then uh, I mean they're, yeah, they're fine. You know,
2: I think uh, you know yeah, the the online grocery is perhaps.
5: <laughs> I mean that
4: that's seen <laughs> as well as a sort of a, a remedial action for the the UK high street to uh, talk of where you know well that that's the. Uh, that's the headline at any rate, but it's, I, I guess like any other government exercises, it's a question of sort of uh, boosting finances. It'll be interesting if you, if you spoke to um, uh, some fund managers of income funds, what they'd say about this as well. The fact that uh, the oil companies have been such high payers through the years and so, so the utilities for that matter as well. So, that, I mean, that's another knock on effect that uh, is detrimental uh, over the long term, I think.
5: That's fair. i mean it's fair to say isn't it the super majors are so geographically diversified now that the relative yeah. hit to them won't be as pronounced as it is it's going to be for the uk only producers yeah that's true well we shall see yeah uh, we shall keep tabs
2: on uh, uh how this all evolves and how uh indeed you know these uh these levies continue to evolve because uh at the moment it certainly seems like a case of more more not less um that brings us to the end of the show unfortunately we've had a great discussion today and thank you to all of our speakers uh, thank you to alex to mark to maddie to leonora and to john there will be no companies and market show next week due to the jubilee bank holiday and all the celebrations therein but we will see you the week after that
0: goodbye the companies and Markets show was hosted by dan jones and edited and produced by me john rogers don't forget to head on over to the iTunes store, give us a rating and a review if you like what you're listening to. Thanks very much and we'll see you next time.